In your Bible, the book of Mark, chapter 16. Mark, chapter 16, of course, there are four accounts of the resurrection of Christ. There is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, Mark was the first one written. It's the earliest dated of the accounts we have here. And we're going to read it today. It probably does, is not read as often as the others. And as soon as you find Mark chapter 16, stand to your feet with me, and we'll read God's Word together, okay? Mark chapter number 16, and standing as we read God's Word. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Siloam had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning of the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him as he said unto you. And so they went out quickly, and they fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. And Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you, Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And I pray, give the people an ear to hear and help me to deliver your word faithfully in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been said many times through the years on Easter Sunday morning that we're not here to mourn a corpse. We're here today to hail a conqueror. We're here today to celebrate the conquering of death. And just think about that statement, the conquering of death by our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the early Christians did not celebrate Easter as a specific annual holiday. The reason they didn't is because it was such an important event to them. They celebrated it every single Sunday. In fact, as you know, through the ages prior to Christ, people had worshiped on the Sabbath day. They worshiped on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was God's celebration that he had assigned to us regarding the creation. God labored six days and created the heavens and the earth, and on the Sabbath day, he rested. And so through the years, to commemorate the creation, people worshiped on that, uh, that seventh day. But when Christ arose from the grave, it was as if we have a brand new creation. The old covenant, the Old Testament has now been fulfilled we're living in a different age. We're living in the age of grace. And as we live here 
in the age of grace while we are a new creation. The Bible uses that kind of terminology. And to celebrate that new creation, the early Christians began to worship on the first day, the day which marked and commemorated the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So when the anniversary of his resurrection would come up, I, I presume they would say, well, this is the second year, or the fifth year since the Lord resurrected on this day. But it wasn't to them what it is to people today because every single Sunday was resurrection day in the life of that early church. And it was the heart of their preaching. As I have read through the book of Acts so many times in the past, I have noticed that the very greatest emphasis of the apostles' preaching was their preaching on the resurrection. Now, today, I would say I have probably placed a greater emphasis upon the death of Christ, the cross, than I have the resurrection. And obviously, the cross is everything. It's essential. On the other hand, the cross without a resurrection is powerless, really, to give us eternal life. So it takes the whole thing, but I think today the emphasis has been more on the cross, where in those early days, the heart of every message was the resurrection. Let me show you that. I'm not going to ask you to turn, but I'm just going to read some scriptures where those apostles preaching in the early days of the church, they emphasized this so much in their preaching. When they... Um, in verse 30, let's see here, uh, or 33, rather, of Acts chapter 4, with great power, the apostles gave witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. And so, their preaching emphasized the power of the resurrection. Chapter 5 and verse number 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hanged on a tree, Peter said as he preached to the multitudes in Jerusalem. When the, on the day when the church was empowered and the Holy Spirit came, Peter stood up to preach at the day of Pentecost. And he talked about, yes, you murdered Jesus Christ. He used that term. And you killed the Son of God and you hung him on a tree, but God has raised him up. And his emphasis was the resurrection. Paul, as the gospel spreads across the ancient world, goes to Athens over in Greece, and now the gospel spread hundreds and hundreds of miles. And Paul is preaching there to the Athenian philosophers. And as he preaches to them, what is the emphasis? Jesus Christ is not like any other God, not like any other deity that anybody ever serves, because Jesus Christ is a living Savior. Jesus Christ is proven to be God's Son by His resurrection from the grave. And so they put this huge emphasis upon the resurrection. Now, I think one of the reasons they did this was because that, of course, Jesus Christ died a public death. Josephus, the historian, says that when Jesus Christ died at the crucifixion scene, there was approximately... 3,000 people from the city of Jerusalem that came out, curiosity seekers, if you will, people who liked those kinds of ghoulish scenes. And so 
3,000 people witnessed the death of Jesus Christ, and those 3,000 people would have carried it all over that part of the world. Those people all knew that Jesus Christ had died, but his resurrection is different from his death because his resurrection was a secret resurrection. There was nobody there to witness it. And so the apostles emphasized this because they want people to understand this was a real and a true event that occurred just like his death. And so the resurrection was their great emphasis in the early days of the church. Now I want to give you three three points this morning as I speak to you. I want to show you first of all that the resurrection validates the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. The resurrection is the best proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, I want to show you that the death and resurrection of Christ is the heart of our gospel. If there's no resurrection, there really is no gospel. There's no good news if Jesus is still in a tomb somewhere. And the third thing I want to show you is that the resurrection gives us hope for anything that can occur in this life The Christian is never, ever without hope. First of all, the resurrection validates the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. I read the book of Romans, chapter 1, that great, greatest of all books on salvation. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, I read these words, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the grave. Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God because of the power that brought him forth out of the grave. All through his ministry, he had been demonstrating that power to men. Occasion after occasion, Jesus is raising people from the dead. And just a few days before his own crucifixion and death, maybe a week or two at the most, He'd stood before a tomb where his best friend was Lazarus, and Lazarus had died from a disease. He'd been dead for four days. He was in the tomb that long. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And that tomb opened up, and that man came out wrapped in those grave clothes just days before Jesus himself had gone to the cross and, of course, subsequently resurrected. So Jesus was always demonstrating that he was the one who had power over death. In fact, he often told his apostles and his followers about his impending death. And I'm going to read to you from the book of Mark here, and I want you to just listen to it. But on three different specific occasions, Jesus told his disciples, now I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise from the dead. And he told them that he was prophesying, if you will, his own, his own demise. Mark chapter 8 and verse number 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priest and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And then in the next chapter, another occasion, in Acts chapter, pardon me, in Mark 
chapter 9 and verse number 31. He taught his disciples, and he said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he's killed, he shall rise on the third day. And then I go over to the next chapter. They were on the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And Jesus took again the twelve, and he began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. And they shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will scourge him, they will spit upon him, and shall kill him, but the third day he shall rise again. So over and over, Jesus was telling his disciples, he was describing to them in rather great detail what was going to happen to him in his passion, in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. Now, what I find interesting about this is that over and over he has told the apostles and his followers, I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm, three days later I'm going to raise from the dead. He told them repeatedly. They somehow didn't get it, or if they did, they didn't really believe it in their hearts. And so the day that he died, and they were burying him, the priests and the Sadducees went to see Pilate. And they said, Pilate, we're afraid that when they put his body in that tomb that his disciples are going to come and steal that body. And when they do, they're going to tell everybody he resurrected from the grave because he went around telling people all the time he was going to raise from the dead. Now, we want you to seal that tomb and we want you to put a, a quadrant of soldiers in front of it so that nobody can ever start a rumor that his body's not in that grave. Pilate said to them, I'm not going to give you a guard. You've got your own guard. You've got the temple police, if you will. You let them stand guard. And so they sent their own police force, the Jewish temple police, and they guarded that tomb. Those people were afraid that he was actually going to carry out what he said he was going to do. And where are the Christians? Well, they're, they're not around. They're hiding. <laughs> so his enemies believed that he was going to resurrect more than did his friends. It's an interesting sidelight on this whole thing, isn't it? But in his resurrection, Jesus validated beyond all doubt. He proved the claim that he was the Son of God. He not only could raise people from the dead, he not only said, I'm the resurrection and the life, he conquered death himself personally. And that's what makes this such a glorious day. But the second thing I want you to see is that the death and resurrection of Christ is the heart of our gospel. The word gospel, of course, means good news. And it would not be good news at all, would it, if Jesus Christ had never come out of that grave that day? And over the last six or seven weeks, I've been preaching a series on the Christian after death. I began to observe something as we got into this pandemic, and that is picking up conversations, hearing why, uh, what people thought, and so on. It began to 
be apparent to me that God's people think very wrongly about death. In fact, I'm going to say the average evangelical Christian in America doesn't think any different about death than does his counterpart who's a secularist. And uh, I want to be as nice and positive as I can on this wonderful day, but boy, I picked a lot of that up from my own congregation. And I kept thinking as I studied about death, my goodness, some of our people think about death like pagans. They're so afraid they're absolutely paralyzed. Christian oughtn't to think like that. A Christian ought to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that one day he said, because you live, and because I live, you will live also. And, and so I began to preach on it, and over and over I went to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is known as the resurrection chapter of the Bible, but it's something else as well. It is the chapter that gives us the briefest, the most succinct, the most powerful presentation of what the gospel is of any passage in the Scripture. If you're a member here, I hope by now, and I think that you probably already know what is the gospel. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, their opening verse, Paul says, now I want to declare to you the gospel. I'm going to tell you in simple terms what is the gospel. And he says the gospel is Point one, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He means by that that the Old Testament Scriptures speak of a Messiah who's going to come and who's going to die as a sacrifice for the people. And you see it all the way through the Old Testament. Paul says, I declare to you the gospel that Christ died according to the Scriptures. What Scripture? Exodus 12, the Passover, where the little lamb is slain and the blood is placed on the door in the form of a cross. And whoever puts that blood there is under that blood is safe from the punishment of sin. And then Isaiah 53, where it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or punishment of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we're all healed. And there's Psalm number 22. It's as if a man is standing at the cross and writing a description of what's going on, except the man lived and wrote that a thousand years before it happened. All through there, there are the descriptions of Christ dying according to Scripture. And Paul says that's the first leg of the gospel. That's the first point of the gospel. The gospel's like a three-legged stool. If you remove one leg, it won't stand. A three-legged stool will always fall down if, it, if one leg is removed. And so the gospel has these three legs. The first leg is Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. The second leg is he was buried he was buried. I read about it. You don't need to turn. Just let me read it to you about his burial. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus at night. 
Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. And then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury or the traditional Jewish burial practice. Now in the garden where he was crucified, there was, or in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden there was a new sepulcher wherein was never yet man laid. And there laid they Jesus on the day of preparation for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. And so Christ died for our sins and then he was buried. And what's the point of his burial? The point of his burial is that it was evidence that he was in fact dead. Did you notice the reading? Nicodemus brought a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes, various types of spices and so on that they used in the embalming process. And they would pack that on the body of the deceased. And then the Jews used an eight-foot piece of linen material, pure linen. And they would lay the corpse and wrap it in that. And then they put him in the tomb, and he was there for three days. Three days. Now, the point of the burial, the emphasis of the burial in the Scripture, I believe, is that nobody could have lived packed under 100 pounds of that, wrapped in a cloth, and put away in a tomb for three days. Even if he were not dead when he went in, he would be dead when he came out. The burial is proof that he, in fact, died. The burial proves that it was not a swoon that he was in, an unconscious, weakened state, as the liberals have said through the years, but that he was dead at the cross. The centurion who crucified him and headed up the crucifixion details said he's dead. And then they pack him in a 100 pounds of uh, these various ointments and so on, and they wind him up and they put him away for three days. He's dead. My daddy used to say he's graveyard dead. <laughs> I like that. That means deader than a stone, doesn't it? He's dead. And they put him there. And then the third day he resurrected. That's the third leg on that stool of the gospel of three points. Christ died according to the Scripture. He was buried to prove he was dead. And on the third day, he resurrected from the dead. That's the gospel. And the Bible says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And I want you to focus on that phrase, it's the power of God to save. There is no salvation without the gospel. And there is no gospel without all three legs on the stool. The resurrection is essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want to add to that gospel part of the message today. I want you to understand why he had to do all of that. And he had to do that because of sin. And I, as I thought about the message today, I thought, boy, in our country, in our culture, in America today, we have so trivialized sin. 
We have made sin just a little picadillo. I laugh these politicians on television. When they get caught lying, they always say, I misspoke. What a joke that you misspoke. No, you lied. You see, but we've trivialized it. We've explained it away. We've psychologized it. It's something in our personality. It's in our id or our ego or one of those things. And we can justify it. We justify it. You know, preacher, everybody's a sinner, and we kind of hold our hands out and shrug our shoulders. I mean, yes, I sin every day. Doesn't everybody sin every day? That's right. That makes yours okay. And so we found a way to live with our sin. I want to take you back to this weekend that we're talking about. I want you to see how serious sin is. Sin is so serious, it costs the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the unique, only begotten God-man, it cost him his life. You think God is a fool? You think God sent Jesus down to the earth to go through what he went through on the cross just because sin is a little picadillo? Sin shook the creation. Sin is a violation of God's law. Sin offends God. Sin is defiance. Sin is rebellion. It shakes its fist in the hand of God or in the face of God. And it says, I don't care what your rules and your laws and your plan and your will is. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's what sin is. Let's get serious about sin because until we get serious about sin, we can't be serious about salvation. Nobody's going to get saved until they first see how deeply sin offends God. Friday night, I was home, and Norm and I ate, ate dinner and sat down, and I thought, I got a while here, and the kids gave us a Roku for uh, Christmas, and good night. Take a genius figure that thing out. So, you know, I got my Roku, and I'm playing around with it, and I finally got on there, and they're showing you can watch The Passion of Christ for free. I'm always for free. So I want to watch the free one, right? But no, really, I'm wanting to do it because it's the holy day. It's Good Friday. I hadn't seen it since 2004 when it first came out. And so Norm and I sat there, I mean, overwhelmed for two hours. They're beating him. You know, that beating thing goes on and on and on and, oh, man so awful. I can't really watch it. And Norma said to me, um, you think it was that bad? And I said, I've read a lot about it. There's Roman scourges. Many, many of the people that were scourged never made it to the cross. They died then. Scourging was so bad, they hit him with that cat of nine tails and pulled it down, just tore their back open. Sometimes they said the internal organs of kidneys would fall out on the ground. It's horrible. I looked over at her, and boy, she's just crying. And in a moment, I was too. Ladies and gentlemen, 
That's how serious sin is. That's what sin did. That was my sin that put him there. Now, I've painted a very black background purposefully like the jeweler that lays the diamond on the black velvet to contrast it. I want you to see the beauty of the gospel. And you won't ever see the beauty of the gospel till you see the blackness of sin. And you see our sins against the backdrop of Calvary. And oh, man, you rejoice in this day. You thank God for what he did there. He died according to the scripture. He was buried to prove he was dead, and he rose again the third day according again to the scriptures. And so if I take the resurrection out, then the bridge is too short to get to the other side. Salvation is incomplete even as wonderful as the crucifixion and the burial are, it's a bridge too short if I don't have the resurrection. We've got to have Jesus conquer death. He died to forgive us of our sins. He resurrected to give us eternal life. He had to conquer death itself. So the resurrection validates the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. The death and resurrection is the heart of the gospel. You can't have a gospel of good news without a resurrection of the Savior. And the third thing is the resurrection gives us hope beyond this life. In that wonderful resurrection chapter, again, 1 Corinthians 15 and 19, Paul writes, If Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are of all men most miserable. If Jesus didn't come out of that tomb 2,000 years ago, we are simply deluded. Our faith is futile. Our faith is in vain. The whole thing hinges on whether or not the Son of God had power to pay for our sins and then come back from the dead. And if we don't have that hope, he says we're of all men most miserable. We're deluded. We're fools. We're we're, we're, we're deceiving ourselves, as it were. And on that morning, that Easter morning, our Savior forced open a door. In fact, he kicked it open. I mean, he didn't piddle around with it. He forced open a door that had been slammed shut in the face of every man and woman and boy and girl since the day that Adam walked upon the earth. When they laid him in the tomb, a dead body, but his spirit wasn't dead. He told the thief today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And somewhere, wherever Jesus happened to be at that time, they laid that body down, cocooned in those spices and wrapped in that linen. And I'm sure as he looked down and watched them burying his physical human body, he thought, now on the cross, I finished the plan of salvation, but there's one more thing I've got to do. I've got to go back down there and resurrect in my body and show the world that I've conquered death. And so he came, and on that Sunday morning early before the dawn, God resurrected him from the grave. 
And so our sins are paid for. And death has been conquered. I heard a preacher say one time years ago, and I wrote it down. I liked it so much. He said, the devil couldn't stop him. The cross could not defeat him. And the grave could not hold him. And I thought, boy, that sums it up, doesn't it? That sums it all up. The devil couldn't stop him. The cross could not defeat him. And the grave could not hold him. Praise God for that. I've lived a long time now. God's been very good to me. But I've never seen times like we're living in. I mean, I've not seen anything even comparable to the time we're living in right now. Things are happening which I don't have time to go into, but I need not describe them. You know about them. Things are happening in our country in the last three or four months. We've seen this country take a radical turn towards socialism. We've seen the country spend more money that it did not have. All of it simply created money, created in the air by computers on bank accounts. We've seen more money created than had been spent in all the history of the country. It's, it's a remarkable time. I think it was Thursday this past week, got a letter from a missionary. His name is David Spite. He serves in Thailand. And he writes to tell us here, we support him every month. He writes to tell us about his work. And here's his report. In Thailand, twice as many people have died from the shutdown and the isolation as have died from the COVID itself. Because in Thailand, our economy is weak. We're a third world country. There's no $1,400 checks for people in Thailand. And when people lose their job in Thailand, there's no hope. And when there's this much unemployment, there's no jobs to be had. There's no place to go. And it's a Buddhist culture. And Buddhism doesn't give you the hope of a resurrection. It teaches at best reincarnation. And so people are killing themselves in astronomical numbers. Everywhere around us, people are taking their lives. Life is not the same here as it is in America. Twice as many now have died from the shutdown and depression and suicide as have died from the disease. It's not that bad in America, but it's bad. If you were to ask me to describe America today, I'd say it's a culture of hopelessness and it's a culture of death. Suicide is up over 200% in several states. Drug abuse. We were in the middle of an opioid pandemic, or not a pandemic, they wouldn't call it that. 80-some 80, 80 thousand people died of opioid overdoses in the year before uh, COVID. And we don't even know how many now, but it's been a very tragic thing, that deaths from drug abuse and from alcohol and depression. Depression up fourfold. We read that fourfold. What do you mean fold? I mean 400% increase in people who are presenting themselves for treatment from depression. We don't even know how many are depressed. 
And so there's this culture of fear and this culture of death because people don't have hope. And I'm glad you came this morning. I'm so thankful God gave me the privilege to preach to you out of his word and to talk to you for a while about Jesus and tell you that in Jesus there is hope. We're not like those people that can give up because we're going through difficult times. We have a Savior, a living Savior. And he said, because I live, you will live also, John chapter 14. My dad used to tell a story when I was a boy, and I was sitting listening to him preach, and it, I read it again the other day, and another publication came back to my mind. I thought I wanted share that with you. <clears throat> it's about a man who was a businessman in Chicago. And uh, he started out as a kid there in Sunday school, went to a good sound church, heard the gospel stories all of his life. As an adolescent, though, he began to drift. He went off to college, became a very wealthy, wealthy businessman. Now he's an old man walking home. It's almost dark, and it's the Easter season in Chicago. And in the busy downtown there, there's a store, and it has a big window, and in the window he sees a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. And he stops and looks at that, and as he looks at it, he's meditating, he's thinking, and God is using the picture to bring to his mind those things that he was taught as a boy, memories from his boyhood. And he stands and looks in the plate glass window at the at the picture of the crucifixion. He's thinking his own deep thoughts about his life. And suddenly he senses a, another presence there. He looks at the little boy. The little boy is a ragmuffin. The little boy is what they used to call street urchins. And back 7,500 years ago, our major cities were full of these little children. They were orphaned or they were on the streets, they basically scavenged for a living. They ate out of garbage cans. They made it on their own. Perhaps they'd lost their parents. Sad, sad little children, sad situations. And this little boy is there. He's ragged. He smells. He's filthy, dirty. And the little boy is standing looking at the same picture with this wealthy, wealthy businessman. And the little boy begins to speak out, just out loud. I guess he's talking to the man. But the little boy says, that man in the middle is Jesus. And them soldiers around him are Roman soldiers, and they killed him. And that woman there, a crying, that's his mama. And the businessman didn't even speak. His heart's full. He's thinking. God's speaking to him. The little boy said, I learned that over at the mission Sunday school. And in a moment, the man turned and he walked. Eight, ten steps. And then he hears a voice. Say, mister, I forgot to tell you something. He arose again. <laughs> he arose again. They killed him. I learned that at the mission Sunday school. But, mister, he arose again. That's why we're here today. That's what makes it a glorious day, isn't it? 
That's what gives us hope. That is the leg on the stool of the gospel that completes the whole salvation plan. He arose again. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, quietly and reverently.